This morning's reading is taken from John chapter 17 and reading from verse 9. The section is about Jesus praying for his disciples. Listen to the good news proclaimed in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, and reading from verse 9. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may truly be sanctified. This is the Gospel of Christ. Good, well thank you Ian very much indeed. Good morning everybody. It was lovely to hear from Beverly and from Michael. I'm very grateful to both of you for testifying so openly and warm-heartedly. That was lovely. Let's, uh, let's pray as we come to our study this morning. Our loving Father, we thank you that you do for us that which we are not able to do for ourselves in bringing us salvation and blessing after blessing. We pray today that in your kindness and power, you would give us one more blessing of understanding your truth, that we might be convinced and comforted and live in the light of it. And we pray 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Semi mentioned at the beginning of the service, this is our eighth study in the Apostles' Creed, and we're looking at two phrases this morning. Uh, I believe in Christ's holy universal church, the fellowship of Christians. And I guess at first sight, this looks like the least exciting part of the creed. Uh, So far, we've looked at, I believe in God the Father, that's wonderful. And then I believe in Jesus Christ, that's wonderful. And then last week, I believe in the Holy Spirit, that's also wonderful. But now we find ourselves saying, I believe in Christ's holy universal church, the fellowship of Christians. And it's a very strange shift uh, because we've been talking about God who is perfect and sovereign and saviour. We believe in him. And now we're saying, I believe in the church, which is far from perfect. It's full of faults. It seems to be so weak. I guess that uh, many non-Christians today would say, I believe in G-O-D, but they don't believe in the church. Now, most of us here this morning, I think, believe in Jesus, but I wonder how many of us can say with conviction and joy, I believe in the church. Well, we Christians do believe in the church. It's a reality. Jesus said that he would build his church around the world. He's been doing it for the past 2,000 years. And today, the church exists in every country in the world. In some cases, of course, it's underground, but it's in every country. And of course, the church is loved by Jesus Christ. We may not love the church, Jesus does love the church, and he laid down his life for his bride. But of course, we also know, don't we, that the church can be a very painful place. And I'm sure you, like me, have friends who've already been badly hurt by the church, and now they avoid the church like the plague. So it is a place that can do damage. And there will be plenty of people in Cape Town who will say, well, why on earth would you have anything whatsoever to do with that place? But at the same time, it can also be a gateway to salvation. And as we've heard from our testimonies this morning, some of you here in this building came under the influence of other believers in this church, and they helped you find your way to Jesus. Uh, The American author Jerry Bridges says that when he was in the Navy, he joined uh, a Bible study made up of Christian men. And writing about that, he says, quote, I don't remember anything that was said on that first night, but the one thing that I do remember was the atmosphere. These men had a close personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and I at best had a distant relationship but I met with these men week by week, and the atmosphere of their fellowship with Christ and with one another was absolutely gripping. 
And surely we would want God to give us that same sense of closeness in all our gatherings, that it would be not only a help to us, but an encouragement to other people. So friends, when we move from belief in God to belief in the church, it actually does make sense because the God that we believe in has a family. And because, yes, we are saved through a vertical relationship with God, a personal, individual relationship with God, when that happens, it automatically brings us into a horizontal relationship with all his people. Now, these two phrases, Christ's Holy Universal Church and the Fellowship of Christians, they are essentially saying the same thing. They build on one another because we believe that God has lots of people. Having said that, some of the words in these phrases are a bit confusing. For example, the word holy sounds like we're a sort of super spiritual exclusive club, and of course we're not. And that word universal seems to suggest that every institution in the world that calls itself a church has the same relationship with Jesus Christ, but they don't. The church is not actually universal in that sense. So we have to be careful and we need to be reminded what these words in the creed actually mean. So this morning, what we're going to do is concentrate on four of these words, and we're going to try and understand what they mean in the creed in each case. And the first word we're going to look at is the word holy. That word means chosen or set apart. So listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter here is writing to ordinary Christians like me and you. And he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Now, you might be the sort of person who says, look, well, when you talk about someone being chosen... Quite frankly, Simon, that's not me. I can understand why it might refer to that godly person sitting on the other side of the church, but I'm not like him or her. And for me to think that I'm chosen, well, frankly, that's going too far. But I want to say to you this morning that if you have chosen to put your faith in Christ, if you've chosen to belong to him, if you've chosen to follow him, it's because you were chosen by Christ first. You can't actually choose him unless he first chooses and changes you. And that's why the Lord Jesus says in John chapter 15, where he's talking to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And think, if you like, of the various different pictures that the Bible uses to describe the church. Think, for example, of the family. Now, why is there a family? Well, if I can put it this way, it's because 
the father got to work. Or think of the picture of the church as a bride. Why is there a bride? Well, it's because the bridegroom, Jesus, came looking for her and found her. Or think of the image of the church as a temple. Uh, Why is there a temple that's made up of living believers? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit took the initiative to regenerate, to convert, and bring them in. So, friends, these pictures of the church, the family, the bride, the temple, they're all reminders that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit took the initiative. And having done that, God has placed us back in the world as his set-apart holy people. That does not mean that there's anything special about us. But you see, God loves to work through all his chosen people. Some of you will have heard of the American evangelist D.L. Moody. Uh, He was preaching on one occasion at a a huge convention. D.L. Moody was a very simple man. Um, His language was simple. He could actually hardly spell. But there was the most tremendous response to his message. And after the talk, somebody came up to him and said, you know what, I don't mean to insult you, but quite frankly, I can't see any connection between you and this tremendous blessing. And D.L. Moody replied, well, that's exactly how we like it. And of course, that's right, isn't it? God uses us as his instruments beyond anything we would expect. And you know, when I think of my my own journey as a Christian, I'm one of millions of people who've been helped by the church. I can remember the people who welcomed me the first time I attended church. And over the years, I've been fed God's word by the church. I've seen the Christian life modeled in the church. I've been discipled in the church and I've been kept by the church when I've been in danger of wandering away. Now, at the same time, I should say there have been moments when I've been frustrated by the church and disappointed by the church and hurt by the church. But I've also been matured by the church and greatly blessed by it because you see the church is God's chosen people his holy people now friends when we are talking about the church we need to be clear that this group of people that you can see in the building this morning is a visible church there is also an invisible church. And that's a very different thing. A visible church is the people you can see. And friends, it's the easiest thing in the world to walk into this building and for everyone else to see you. You can do that and still not belong to Christ. You you can belong to the visible church and not belong to Jesus Christ. The invisible church, by contrast, 
is the people around the world that God knows are his own. Now, we don't know for sure who all of those people are. Only God knows. But that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, many Israelites came out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They ate the manna. They drank the water from the rock. But they didn't have a relationship with God. And they perished in the desert. Or the Apostle John says in his first letter, chapter 2, Some left our fellowship, and the reason that they left our fellowship was because they never actually belonged to our fellowship. Now, here at St. Barnabas, we have a list of members uh, going back to the year when we first planted the church, but the list of members, my very dear friends, is a different thing from the Lamb's Book of Life. You know, becoming a member of St. Barnabas is actually a relatively easy thing. All you have to do is go and speak to Raymond, answer a couple of questions, and if you get them right, you're in. But for your name to be in the Lamb's Book of Life, my dear friends, that takes a miracle. Christ must choose you and change you in order that you will choose him and be changed. So when we say that we believe in the holy or set-apart people of God, we're saying a great deal more than that we believe in a bunch of people who gather in a building on Sunday morning. We're actually saying that we believe in a miraculous family, and it is a huge, huge privilege. So that's our first word. The second word we're looking at this morning is this word universal. Now, the older version of the creed had the word Catholic. And uh, us oldies can remember when we used to stand up on Sunday morning and say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And, of course, many people got totally confused by that and thought we were talking about the Roman Catholic Church. And so in recent times it was changed. So today we say, I believe in Christ's holy universal church. Now when we say that, we're talking about the unity of the worldwide church under the lordship of Christ. Therefore, it's inclusive of different denominations, uh, different styles of worship, All that's required is that those churches acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. So think, for example, of what Jesus says in John chapter 10. He says, I have other sheep. They're scattered all over the place. But there's only one shepherd, and I've got to gather them in for salvation. Or think of that picture that we're all familiar with in Revelation chapter 7 where John sees a great multitude of people praising the Lamb. And you remember, he says they're from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. What are they doing? Well, they're all thanking the Lamb for salvation. So there is a universal church. Sometimes you'll find that the Bible talks about the universal church. For example, uh, we're told that Paul 
at an early stage in his life, persecuted the church. Now, when it says that, it doesn't mean he simply picked on one particular church, St. Barnabas, Bethlehem, or wherever it was. It doesn't mean that. It means he picked on every conceivable church he could find. And therefore, the word church in that context means the universal church. Or you remember the Lord Jesus who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, obviously, he wasn't talking about just one local church. He was talking about the worldwide church. And uh, the little outposts, friends, of the universal church are local churches. Some of them might have only two or three members. Some of them might meet under a tree. Some of them might meet in fancy buildings. Some of them might have congregations numbering hundreds or even thousands. All of them can be outposts of the universal church, which is why, of course, the Apostle Paul could write to the Colossian church or the Philippian church or the Ephesian church. And you remember that Jesus said that if there's trouble and uh, things get really bad, you should report it to the church. He didn't mean that you should send an email to every single church around the world. He didn't mean that. No, he said, report it to the local church. They've got to sort it out. Now, all of that raises a very interesting question, and that is whether the church is really one. Is there really one true church? Well, the Bible says there is one church. God has one family. Jesus has one bride. And the Holy Spirit has one temple. And uh, even the Nicene Creed, which we don't use very much these days, but is in extensive use across the rest of Africa, the Nicene Creed says, I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Now, no sooner are those words off our lips than we realize, don't we, that it's actually, it can sound like a joke to say that the church is one. I mean, imagine posting a message on social media after the sermon this morning and saying, I want all my friends to know that the church in Africa is one. I tell you what, you would get some pretty hostile responses. People would say, well, look at all the denominations. Semi mentioned it earlier. Look at the divisions. Look at the disagreements. Look at the squabbles. Look at the scandals. And yet, it is true. God's church is one. So let's try an illustration. Think of a family. Uh, let's call them the Vandermervers. And uh, the Vandermervers have lots of children. Their children, in turn, have lots of children. And in due course, well, some of them emigrate to different countries around the world. And inevitably, there are the usual family squabbles. So sadly, some of them aren't speaking to one another anymore. And yet, they're all still members, aren't they, of the Vandermeerva family? And in exactly the same way, God has his children 
They've all been indwelt by the Spirit. They all have Jesus as their Savior. They all have God as their Father. So there is that spiritual oneness. They're all born again. And they're all on their way to glory. And God, you see, is at work. Listen to this carefully. God is at work to cause genuine believers to become agreed believers. That's what God is doing. And how does he do it? He does it by bringing his truth to us in order that we would think the same and in order that we would love the same. So God knows his family. And uh, when we say we believe in Christ's holy universal church, we're thinking of a miraculous family everywhere. Then the third word that we're looking at this morning is the word fellowship. Now once again in the older version of the creed, uh, we said, I believe in the communion of saints. And uh, people thought we were talking about the Lord's Supper. Uh, So eventually it was changed to, I believe in the fellowship of Christians. Well, of course, that's much better, but it's still not perfect and it needs unpacking. What do we mean when we talk about fellowship? Are we simply saying that we enjoy each other's company? No, we're not. In the New Testament, the Greek word is the word koinonia, and what it means is to have something in common, something vital in common. So the Apostle John, in his first letter, says, we, that is the apostles, proclaim Christ to you so that you may have fellowship with us, the apostles, And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So friends, when we talk about about fellowship as Christian people, it's first of all fellowship with God and then automatically fellowship with all his people. Now I wish that we grasped more than we do, and I include myself in this, that what we have in common is Jesus Christ. Because you see, friends, there's going to come a day when everything else that we have in common, whether it's sport or a career or a car or clothing or a hobby or an ethnicity, all of that's going to disappear. And it's going to be having Christ that's going to be seen to be the most significant, the most wonderful, and actually the most valuable of all the things we have in common. Imagine for a moment that you uh, go overseas and you find wherever it is that you can't speak the local language. And uh, after a few days of feeling really rather lonely and isolated, you come across someone who could speak your language whatever that is, you would say, wouldn't you, how great that is to have someone I can finally communicate with because you've got the language in common. 
Or, alternatively, imagine that uh, you land on a desert island and you're stranded, completely alone, and uh, a few days later, somebody else washes up on the beach. You'd be very thankful to have them because you would have that shared experience in common. Now, I'm telling you that that is as nothing compared to the importance of having Christ in common. And time will prove what the Bible tells us, that that our common faith and belonging to Christ is actually the most significant thing about us. Um, Some of you uh, will, will have gone traveling to another country, you've perhaps not been there before. On Sunday, perhaps you visit a local church. You've never been to that church before, but you meet people there who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And in no time at all, even before the end of the service, you find you've got a wonderful, wonderful bond with them because what you have in common is something the world can never give you because your fellowship with Christ overflows into a unique fellowship with his people. And you know instinctively, you know intuitively that you are with brothers and sisters. It's a wonderful thing. Now, of course, nothing will compare to the reality of having fellowship with Christ in person. And, of course, it's only when everything else disappears that we're going to see that for the wonderful thing that it is. But in the meantime, we need to learn to grasp it and seize the opportunity when we are together. So that, over coffee, we're not talking about things that anybody might have in common. Rather, we're talking about the things that we have in common. So, my dear brothers and sisters, it's a very good thing for any of you to come up to me and ask after the service, Simon, how is your walk with Jesus Christ at the moment? What have you learned about him this week? How has God blessed you this week? How has he reminded you of his love for you? And let me tell you right now, so that you don't spill your coffee when you ask me, that there will be times when you ask me that question, and I might say something like this. Right now, my walk with Christ is difficult. I'm dry. I'm stale. I'm not learning anything like as much as I would like. I'm feeling spiritually cold. Now, imagine I'm talking to you, and in that moment... You've got to think, how are you going to encourage me and strengthen me and build me up? And I'm no doubt that many of us in the congregation will have those kind of conversations. And there will be those times when people in this church uh, put their finger on your particular struggle and difficulty and say something helpful for which you are really and truly grateful That is Christian fellowship. Now, the fellowship of Christians, let me say this, uh, also means that we are in fellowship with believers in the past. On Friday night, we 
with the students watched a film about Martin Luther. Well, he died 500 years ago. We are in fellowship with him and uh, with George Whitfield and with John Stott and with Billy Graham and with all our other heroes. We're in a relationship with them. And we're in a relationship today with millions of believers around the world. And you know what? We're even in a spiritual relationship with believers who have not yet been born. So think of it like this. It's as if we are running together a spiritual marathon. Uh, Some have already finished the race and gone home. Today, we're running the race, and shortly, we will go home. Some have yet to start the race, and when they finish, they will also go home. Now, we are in a relationship with all of them, but obviously, we can't communicate with all of them. So this morning, for example, we can't communicate with the believers who've already gone to glory. Uh, Jesus says quite clearly that there is a gulf between us. One day we'll see them, but in the present, right now, we can't communicate with them. And we, do you know what? We can't even pray. Listen to me carefully here. We can't even pray for believers who've gone to glory. Why not? Because they've already been glorified, and that means they don't have any needs. So there's nothing more that we can ask for for them. They finish the race. But there is a very real fellowship we have with believers across the generations, and one day, one day, we will enjoy a wonderful reunion with them. Paul says that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that we'll be together. We'll be together. And that's why, you see, the more we grow in Christ, the more we appreciate our fellowship with our brothers and sisters. I mean, it would be a very strange thing this morning, wouldn't it? And I'm so glad this appeared in the confession we had earlier. It would be a very strange thing, wouldn't it? If uh, you came to church this morning and your hand was injured, but your foot didn't care or didn't even notice, I mean, that's inconceivable, isn't it? And in the same way, it's a strange thing when a believer is hurting and the body doesn't care. Because, you see, Jesus Christ builds into us an affection for his people. Not because we're lovely or attractive or easy. No, it's because there's a new love in us that wasn't there before that steps out for his people. So when we say that we believe in the fellowship of Christians, it is a very, very precious thing. And that brings us to the last word we're going to think about this morning, which is the word Christians. We believe in the fellowship of Christians. Now you may say, well, Simon, do you really need to say anything about this? But I wonder if we know what we really mean when we use that word. In the older version of the creed, it was the word, well, what was it? Somebody tell me. What was it? Saints, yes. We used to say, I believe 
in the communion of saints. But of course, the word saints was often confused with either dead Christians or Christians who had lived an unusually, remarkably fruitful life. But when the New Testament uses the word saints, it doesn't mean either of those things. It simply means Christians. So in the New Testament, all Christians are saints, meaning they've been set apart by God for his service. So the Apostle Paul could uh, describe the Corinthians as saints. Now, that's a very remarkable thing. If you know that book at all, you'll know that they were the most difficult church he ever had to deal with. They had fights. They had sins. They had all kinds of muddled ideas. And in spite of all of it, Paul writes his letter to the saints in Corinth. Why? Because they've been washed by Christ, they were being worked on by Christ, and one day they will see Christ. And the same is true of you and me. According to the New Testament, we who are believers in Christ are his saints. We've been set apart And we also, therefore, have a really important role to play. I wonder if you know what it is. Well, think of Romans chapter 12 for a moment. First of all, we give ourselves to God. That is what saints or Christians do. We have a duty towards him. Now, that means that we get up in the morning and we say to God something like this. Heavenly Father, thank you for this new day. It's full of opportunities. It's full of privileges. It's full of battles. It's full of uncertainties. Please help me today to live for you. Amen. And you pray that, you see, because you are offering yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Romans chapter 12. Then our duty to one another as believers is to help each other to grow. So when we're in contact with one another, either in person or over the WhatsApp or whatever it is, we're thinking to ourselves, how can I help this person to keep trusting in Jesus and to keep on obeying him? And then when we bump into the unbeliever, We're thinking, I wonder how I can help this person to know something of the love and the truth of Christ. Now, friends, those are our responsibilities. We're not stuck to know what we should be doing as believers. And yet, of course, some Christians are extremely confused about this. Rochester Cathedral in the United Kingdom couldn't decide how to reach unbelievers. They ran out of ideas. And so a couple of years ago, they turned the inside of the cathedral into a miniature golf course. Well, I'm not sure how that's going to work because Jesus has told us very clearly, make disciples. That's the job. And we do that with our prayers. We do it with our words. We do it with our love. 
Some of you are doing that at home with your family and with your children. That is a wonderful, wonderful ministry. Some of you will be doing it with your friends or in your home group. Some of you will be doing it gently. Some of you will be doing it boldly and imaginatively. All of us will do it in weakness. William Carey was the great missionary who took the gospel to India. Um, I don't think I'd realized this before, but he translated the Bible into 40 languages. What you might not be aware of is that uh, he had a sister who was almost completely paralyzed. And uh, so she had to stay behind. She had to stay at home. But she made it her job in life to pray for her brother, to pray for all his needs, to pray for his setbacks, to pray for all the challenges. And one writer commenting on this says, when God credits the blessing of the gospel in India, will it go down in the sister's column or will it go down in William Carey's column? That's a very good question, isn't it? So, dear friends, if you find the church difficult and we all do, and if you find the church disappointing, and of course it does disappoint, and if you are sometimes tempted to withdraw, can I encourage you to pray like this? Father, please would you help me to think like you think and to love like you love? Because, you see, I have noticed something very interesting that when you come to church and you feel like your spiritual cup has got only one tiny drop left right in the bottom of it and you want God to fill it up, that God will often say, you pour out that one tiny drop of spiritual life for somebody else and no sooner have you done it than you find your spiritual cup is filled to the brim. Again and again you find that God blesses you as you step forward to bless other people. Someone has said that the church is the most important organization in the world. Well, I believe that with all my heart. And therefore, friends, we say with integrity and with gladness and appreciation that we believe in Christ's holy universal church, the Fellowship of Christians. Let's bow heads and thank God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us to faith in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you for giving us a family of believers forever. We pray that you would look with mercy on us individually and as a group. We ask that we would be a people who truly please you, who offer ourselves to you, and are a blessing to one another and a help to the lost. We pray that you would continue to build and use 
and keep and encourage and bring your people safely home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.